Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. We're joined today by Dr. Bill Petak. He has an independent practice of psychology in Baltimore and Severna Park, Maryland, focused on the psychosocial aspects of reproductive health care, as well as sexual function issues. Welcome, Bill, and thank you for joining us on today's episode. Infertility is something that many couples do struggle with, and it can have broad implications on a couple's overall well-being, as well as particular implications for sexual function. I think that would be a, a great segue talking about couples being in different places to ask you about some of the particular sexual implications, because I imagine if one partner is feeling down, feeling upset, and the other one feels energetic, hopeful, and optimistic, their efforts to engage sexually may be impacted as well. Can you share a little bit about what you see in that realm? I certainly can. So most couples who are in infertility treatment uh, in the early stages before they're doing any interventions are advised that there are fertile times in which they should have intercourse. And then there are non-fertile times where they will not be able to get pregnant. And it often happens that the focus of sexual activity is on that three to five day window. And then the rest of the month is ignored. So uh, those of us who work in the mental health side and many, many medical providers who work in infertility will advise their patients that um, sex for procreative purposes is best during this time period, but that doesn't preclude you from being sexually engaged with one another at other times. So often what happens is couples get focused on that small window and then the rest of the time they are not thinking about maintaining other aspects of their relationship. Of course, as you're well aware, sex is an important um, component of that. So there, there becomes this focus on it. Another thing that, that frequently happens is um, couples report they feel as though there's someone else in the bedroom with them. The image of the doctor or the nurse or the treatment team um, can be omnipresent. And that's um, most of us, let me put it this way, most of us like to be sexually active just with our partners. We don't invite other people into the bedroom with us. And well, well said, Dr. <laughs> Thank you. So that's, that's something that frequently gets reported. Uh, it feels like there's somebody else there with us. Yeah, so when, when, we're not able when, to enjoy ourselves. Sure. And when we're talking about, you know, in particular around erectile dysfunction, and you conjure up that image of feeling like there is somebody else in the room. Yes. And the importance of desire, arousal, pleasure, ability to relax, performance anxiety. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about how this may particularly impact erectile dysfunction for a man who is in a relationship that is experiencing infertility? Well, a lot of guys will report that um, they feel as though they are a delivery system, uh, sex on demand. Uh, This may be not for male factor, but for female factor where there's this window and he gets a call and she says, you got to come home now because I'm, I'm in that window or we have to do it tonight uh, because I'm in that window. And so that's a, an extra level of pressure. 
And if a guy has had shaky erections before or has had even, even insignificant difficulty, the anxiety of feeling as though one has to perform could have an impact on erection. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so you, you see that as a, a potential developing factor. Um, since about the early 80s, uh, there has been um, scientific literature on the interface between uh, sexual dysfunction and infertility. And the statistics range all over the place. And keep in mind that IVF treatment only goes back to 1978. The first IVF baby is only 42 years old. Um, so uh, we, we've, we've got a smaller window of studying what happens. Nevertheless, there have been uh, ongoing reports. In fact, I'm currently editing a book on the interface between infertility and sexual dysfunction. We see uh, an increasing amount of attention paid to this as we begin to understand that we're treating people who have robust lives that incorporate many different functions, sex being one of them, reproduction being one of them, and that if we just focus on one particular component, for example, the reproductive capacity, we're forgetting about the whole person and how those people interact with one another and what they're comfortable with and what gives them anxiety. Yeah, it is, it is really complex. And like you pointed out, a man may have been struggling with erectile dysfunction to an extent before hitting this patch of infertility. Yes. Right? And these things can become very layered and compound pretty quickly yep. for a lot of guys. Yeah. So another, another question I think that our listeners would be interested in is that when a couple is able to overcome this infertility challenge, they're able to conceive and have a baby mm -hmm. through any of the you know, treatments available, will the sexual issues such as erectile dysfunction resolve themselves in your experience or... Can the sexual dysfunction continue even after the initial trigger has been resolved? Well, I'm going to give you the classic answer, which is it just depends. Um, it could resolve. Um, it, you know, the, the anxiety, the performance uh, concerns uh, could dissipate. We got, we got pregnant. We're having a kid. Don't have to worry about that anymore. Or they could continue. And a lot, I think, depends on what were the pre-existing conditions. So a, a guy who's got really good erections and has a, a, a strong sense of self and has a, a good um, sense of what is pleasurable, who develops some transient form of rectal dysfunction during infertility treatment, is probably more likely to recover quickly than a guy who had shaky erections, um, less self-confidence, um, was more concerned about sexual function, uh, after infertility treatment, depending upon what the treatment is, of course. So it, it's going to run a wide range, which speaks to knowing who you're working with well and building in strategies uh, of working with somebody so that they um, don't forget that sex for reproduction is just part of the reason we have sex and that um, doing things which are pleasurable during the course of infertility treatment outside of that window is just as important. And I, I imagine that listeners of this podcast can already appreciate your answer if it just depends as we continually reinforce the message that this is complex. Yes. It's complex and there's no simple answer um, that's going to apply for infertility. Every person who finds themselves in that situation, every man who experiences ED right, during infertility treatments or during a process of not being able to conceive 
is different. His experience is going to be different and how quickly he can resolve his ED is going to depend on a whole slew of factors. This just being one of them. Yes. So to that end, Dr. Pitak, what recommendations do you have for a man who develops significant erectile dysfunction during infertility treatments or during a period where he and his partner are trying to conceive and are not being successful? Well, I, I'd go back to that uh, statement I made before that uh, keeping in mind that, that sex for reproduction is just one of the reasons we have sex and that um, staying connected on a, uh, an emotional and physical level uh, at other times than that fertile window uh, would be important. That uh, pleasuring for just that for pleasuring would be good. We'll sometimes recommend that people take a, a holiday from treatment. Um, there's a whole slew of things that people can do to take a holiday. You, you don't necessarily have to stop um, the treatment. You could, you can't today go to a motel as easily as you could, um, you know, 12 months ago, but um, go, go do something which is fun. Return to some of the things which were romantic in your earlier life together, things which were sexually arousing, things that gave you pleasure. Uh, all of those sort of things uh, would be useful uh, taking that holiday from being focused on sex just for reproduction would be critical. And, you know, I, I wouldn't um, overlook the use of some of the PDE5 uh, inhibitors um, as a, you know, a medical treatment for um, an erectile difficulty. Um, there isn't any data that suggests their use impairs sperm function. Um, so you, you, would, you would be fine doing that. So that may, might be a bit of a, a help during that time period. If I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, the process of infertility treatment can feel not sexy, cannot be... That's an understatement, Mark. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to oversell that, but obviously it, it is you know, filled with challenges. It can become rigid, um, rote. It can feel routine, like we have to get this done. And yep. some of the recommendations that I hear you making are really about infusing the relationship with pleasure, kind of leaning on earlier stages of the relationship where pleasure was more of the focus and infertility was not at the forefront, Correct. trying to call in some of those earlier experiences, as well as you know, potentially talking to a medical provider about um, using a medication. Right? That's what you're referring to. With yeah, the, with yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the other thing is, you know, if you're in infertility treatment, uh, asking the uh, treatment team if they have uh, somebody who is uh, equipped, and they should have somebody who's equipped to deal with the mental health components of infertility, sexuality being part of it. Most of us who work in the infertility field know something about sex because we know that sex is one of the reasons that people have fertility problems. Not everybody specializes in the sexuality component, um, but clearly um, reproductive endocrinologists um, and urologists who deal with this uh, problem understand this difficulty and know and have good referral sources for mental health providers. So a man should not feel like that's something he cannot bring up with an endocrinologist or with any other fertility counselor or professional. This is certainly a well-known challenge yes. of trying to conceive. A provider is likely going to be understanding, empathic, and will be able to help you get to the treatments that you need to help resolve that erectile dysfunction. That's correct. So Dr. Pitak, can you share with us how common infertility issues are for couples? Sure. Mark, it's, the data suggests that between 12 and 15% of, uh, 
of couples will experience infertility in one form or another. And infertility is defined as having unprotected vaginal penetrative sex for 12 months without conception. So it's important to have that construct built around it so we know what the definitions are. Of that 12 to 15%, and we're talking about primarily uh, worldwide, not just uh, United States statistics. Of that um, amount, their breakdown is about 50% is female factor, about 40% is male factor, and another 10% is shared male and female. So despite what people may um, glean from news reports or popular press, male factor infertility is almost as significant as female factor. Wow. So you're saying that about 12 to 15% of couples are going to encounter a period of 12 months with intentionally trying to conceive through penetrative sex and will not be successful? That's correct. Of that 12 to 15%, 40% of those couples will be experiencing that as a result of an issue on the male, with the male partner. That's correct. It's, it's a big chunk. And um, like I said, popular press would have you believe that infertility is primarily a female problem, but it is significantly a male problem as well. And there are a number of reasons why the press doesn't cover it in the same way. Um, ultimately, every pregnancy takes place within a woman. And so uh, a great deal of uh, medical uh, attention is directed at the, wom- the female component of infertility. So it requires, generally speaking, both partners. Can, yeah. Dr. Pita, can you share with us about some of the particulars of that 40%? What, what types of issues lead to male infertility or the male role in this process of infertility? Well, you could think about it in two ways, um, two primary components. One has to do with production of sperm that are well-functioning, and the other is the delivery of those sperm so that they can fertilize an egg. So it's about the production and also the plumbing, if you will. And uh, the production of sperm, as, as with the production of eggs, is a complex process which has uh, got biological and hormonal components to it uh, that are critical. Um, and with one of those components malfunctioning, you could wind up with a lack of production or production of sperm which are inadequate for proper fertilization of an egg. Um, and then the other side of that would be there's some way that the sperm can't get to the egg. Either it has difficulty transversing uh, making the, the transition from the testis um, to the seminal duct and out through the vas deferens and through the penis into the vagina, or there's some other functional issue that's causing a uh, lack of sperm production. So uh, testicles uh, reside below the body on purpose because they need to be slightly cooler than the average body temperature to produce uh, sperm. And so if you have, for example, something called a varicocele, which is a a large knot of veins around a testicle, Uh, the heat from the blood in those veins can overheat the testis so that it can't uh, produce sperm properly. So it's, as as you can see, it's a rather complex process. Yes, it sounds rather complex. And and what I'm gathering from you, Dr. Pitak, is that there is the production end of the sperm, which can have a whole slew of problems, as well as the delivery. Now, when you talk about delivery, 
and in particular around around the podcast that that we're focusing on in sexual dysfunction, sure. does that include instances of anejaculation anajac- where a man may have trouble reaching ejaculation through penetrative sex? Or are we yes. talking about even with ejaculation, there's particular challenges with uh, the sperm being able to travel once it is in the woman? So you could have uh, an ejaculation problems where uh, the man does not ejaculate uh, with penetrative sex. You could have retrograde ejaculation where the ejaculate goes essentially backwards and winds up in the bladder, unable to get out of the penis and into the vagina and therefore uh, into the uterus and um, able to fertilize an egg. Um, so those would be two, two issues. And of course, without the ability to penetrate, um, having an erectile dysfunction, um, you can't deliver the, the goods, so to speak. So Dr. Peter, can you inform myself and the listeners about what the primary treatments are for infertility? Well, let's divide them into two categories. There's the female side of thing, which I'll talk about second, and then there's the male side of thing. There are such a wide variety of issues that could take place that have an impact on sperm production. So there could be hormonal issues, there could be exposure to toxins. Uh, We know that anybody who has uh, chemotherapy for uh, cancer uh, is likely to have uh, impaired, if not uh, destroyed, uh, spermatogenesis because of the the toxic nature. Uh, People are exposed to toxic chemicals. Um, There's even... um, Uh, Well, there are problems with things such as uh, marijuana smoking, because THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, has uh, an effect which reduces sperm production. Um, It is reversible um, in most cases, but if a man has been smoking for a very long time and has built up high levels of THC in his testes, which is where they would reside, where it would reside, Um, he's going to have difficulty. Same would be true for a man who uses steroids, anabolic steroids for weightlifting. Um, What happens in that case is the brain gets a message that there's plenty of testosterone on board and you don't need to produce anymore and production of testosterone is necessary for the production of sperm. So in trying to get stronger and become more manly, a man could be destroying another form of manliness, which is being able to conceive. So uh, the other part would be some form of blockage. Um, One of the more common forms is something called um, CBAVD, which is um, uh, chronic bilateral absence of the vas deferens. The vas deferens is a, a duct which gets the sperm out of the testis and to the ejaculatory duct and then into Um, the penis so that it can be flushed into uh, the vaginal barrel. Um, But if you don't have a vas deferens, you may be producing viable sperm, but it can't get out. And here we have uh, new treatments, which are quite remarkable. The treatments are microsurgical techniques, which allow um, a surgeon to extract sperm either from the vas, where it may be stuck, or directly from the testicle. Um, These uh, procedures are done uh, under anesthesia, um, under the microscope, and by highly trained individuals. But quite remarkably, um, it is able to extract sperm directly from a a testicle, um, freeze it, um, or use it immediately in a fresh state to fertilize an egg. With a procedure known as ICSI, which is short for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. 
And what happens in this process, and you can watch videos of this on the internet, it's really quite remarkable. Um, a single egg is held under a pipette, in a pipette under the microscope, and a single sperm is placed in a much thinner pipette. And that thin pipette with the single sperm is placed through the outer coating of the egg, the zona pellucida, to the interior of the egg, and the sperm is injected into that egg. The pipette is withdrawn, the, um, the, the zona pellucida heals over, and you get a high rate of fertilization like this. So many people refer to that as a treatment for male factor infertility. Yeah, so it sounds like it's, it's you know, quite a cutting edge type of intervention. And yep. when we go back to that 40% being caused by male, mm-hmm. right, it sounds like men can have a pretty active role in resolving yep. the, the infertility. Like you pointed out, Dr. Pitak, I would have imagined that primarily the man is asked to ejaculate into a cup and the rest happens on the female partner's side. Uh, but just bit. hearing about what some of the implications are, yeah. uh, this could be this could be you know somewhat. I, I understand it's a microsurgery, but it still can involve a little bit more than ejaculating into a cup, um, and Correct. could could require more of the male partner. Well, and in fact, IUI, which is what you're talking about, intrauterine insemination, is one um, way of delivering. If there's a um, a delivery issue. Um, if there's a delivery issue and you can't get sperm out, then you're going to have to go in and, and extract it if you can, if it's there. Um, IUI would be helpful um, under circumstances where there are other issues that impede sperm from uh, connecting with an egg. So, for example, um, there may be antibodies which attack the sperm when they enter um, the vaginal barrel and prevent it from going through the cervix. Um, so IUI would go through the, the vaginal barrel with a, a flexible catheter and place sperm directly into the uterus. If you have, um, you, but many people do ICSI now, many reproductive endocrinologists do ICSI as a matter of course, uh, because traditional IVF places eggs in a Petri dish and places sperm in that Petri dish and hopes that they get together, which they typically do, but with ICSI, you see it happening under the microscope, so you know you've got a fertilized egg. It's a, a higher tech, um, more cost, but um, more effective. It sounds like there are a number of excellent treatments out there. Yes. And couples have a lot of things open to them. Now, can you share a little bit about the stress that couples experience going through this process? Absolutely. Um, this is true for both men and women, but probably more so for women. Um, the sort of mindset as we grow up is that we will, um, for those of us who are heterosexual, we will uh, grow up, uh, go to school, get a career, find a mate, and have a family. Um, and today, even if we're not heterosexual, uh, technology allows us to have families, uh, especially with the use of gestational carriers and egg donors for uh, gay men. Um, and uh, gay women have been doing this for years with just sperm donors. So that's the mindset. Um, that's what we expect to happen. And when that doesn't happen, the sense of failure, embarrassment, shame, um, self-blame, uh, we could go on and on about um, what kinds of things people think, um, both men and women, about this um, failure to conceive, um, this infertility. And so it can be quite stressful. And that's just the diagnosis. Um, and then you talk about the treatments. 
And so, as you could imagine from my description of um, what um, sperm extraction looks like uh, with these microsurgical techniques, it's not exactly the sort of thing we uh, wake up in the morning and think about that would be just great. Um, in fact, probably when I was talking about that surgical procedure, many men listening sort of pinch their legs together because the thought of someone cutting your testicle open to get um, sperm out is not exactly comforting. Um, I will, so, I will acknowledge I had, I had a similar reaction upon hearing that as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you're, you're not alone. Um, so there's the stress of that. And then of course there's the stress of will this work? And then there is the over, the overriding stress of what this will cost. You know, infertility treatments are not inexpensive. Uh, the average IVF cycle um, in the United States costs between twelve and fifteen thousand um, dollars. If you throw in ICSI uh, and other treatments, um, you're talking upwards of twenty thousand um, dollars. So this is not inexpensive, and many states don't mandate treatment for infertility. Um, Maryland, where we are, happens to be one of the mandated states, and so up to three cycles are. Uh, mandated to be covered by insurance. Uh, but in many states, that is not the case. So you're paying out of pocket um, for the, the cost of treatment. And depending upon your financial circumstances, that can be quite stressful. So it sounds that, like there, yeah, there are a number of issues that are going to impact both individuals and couples. Correct. Stemming yeah. all the way back to their early years schema of what life is supposed to look like. Yeah. Right. That's, that's through the exactly treatment, right. yeah, through the treatment period, the financial cost, the concern, the fear, the worry, the potential disappointment of treatment not working. Correct. Yeah. Do you do you see unique patterns or particular patterns in terms of the ways couples interact or struggle to interact, struggle to engage and connect when they're going through this process? Probably the most um, significant pattern is that usually neither party is in the same place as the other party at the same time. Um, and that can cause stress because if I'm down and my spouse is uh, in a more hopeful period, um, she may wonder what's wrong with me. Why am I not more hopeful or vice versa? Um, but of course, individuals go through these things individually. And if someone has been identified as the major problem area, whether it be male or female, they may take on an extra burden of stress and guilt and worry. And, um, you know, their partner may say, don't worry, we'll be able to work things out. And as you're well aware, telling somebody not to worry is an ineffective strategy. Um, doesn't, doesn't work. People tend to worry anyway. The other thing that you pointed out, which is fascinating, is how young the field of infertility treatment really is. And that data is still being collected. We, we, don't really know to what extent uh, the implications are for sexual dysfunction that stems during this period as well as during the treatments. Correct. Right, we're continually learning, but it's fair to assume that it could have a role and maybe even a significant role in a sexual dysfunction like erectile dysfunction. It could. Let me, let me just add one thing. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the field of IVF is only 50, 42 years old. Um, infertility treatment has been going on further than that. The first artificial insemination took place in 1884 uh, in Philadelphia at Thomas Jefferson University. A doctor by the name of William Pancoast did that. Uh, turned out the woman, um, a, a, the wife of one of his uh, residents was unable to conceive, and they determined that it was a male factor problem. 
So, and this, you know, speaks to the zeitgeist of the times. They, uh, the doctor uh, looked around at his residence and picked the one that he presumed would be the best looking and had him produce a specimen, which he was going to transfer. The woman was not told that this was going to take place. And she was anesthetized, so she didn't. She did. She was knocked out basically. So she didn't know that, that whose semen was being used to artificially inseminate her. The scientific report didn't come out for 25 years later, and so we get this notion that um, the use of donors is a secret which must be kept. The thinking at the time was uh, a knowing a child knowing that they were donor conceived would be unable to bond with their parents, um, and of course this was long before Bowlby had developed attachment theory. Um, it was somebody's idea. Um, so it's it's led to a uh, feeling that secrecy is important in reproductive medicine, and that's changed over the last uh, 25 or 30 years. We now know that um, there is no shame in being donor-conceived. Uh, we now know that children who are the product of donor conception bond very well with the people who raise them. Those are their parents. Um, the donor was just that, a donor. But I've gotten off on a tangent. Yes, from the, 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 field, the field has the field has developed, and and you know, infertility uh, certainly has been a challenge historically. Yes, um, but you're saying treatment began already as do- documented treatment began in the 1800s, late 1800s. Late 1800s. But IVF is really more in the past 40 some odd years. years. Yeah, 42 years was the first baby, right? Well, well, Dr. Pitak, I want to thank you very much for your time. This has been extremely informative. I have no doubt that our listeners are going to learn a tremendous amount from this from this podcast, certainly about infertility treatments, the potential challenges that they bring to sexual engagement, and the importance of infusing a relationship with pleasurable activities. I hope that's I hope that's the overall message. Um, I want to thank you, Mark, for inviting me to do this. Um, it's, of course, the male factor infertility has been a special interest of mine for many years. Um, and it's a, a pleasure to be able to speak to your audience about this. Thank you. We look forward to having you again on the podcast in the future. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.